Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the London School of Economics and Political Science for today's event. My name is Minou Shafiq. I'm the director of the school, and it's a great honor for me to welcome Mario Santana at the LSE tonight. Uh, as I'm sure you're aware, he is Portugal's finance minister, but since 2005, he has been president of the Eurogroup. He also serves as chair of the Board of Governors of the European Stability Mechanism. Now, as most of you know, the Eurogroup is the group of 19 finance ministers who oversee politically the monetary union. And chairing it is a tough job, as I have witnessed personally. Uh, you have heard the expression herding cats. This is like herding big beasts, 19 of them, uh, all with strong views and all of whom have to make decisions by consensus on how the monetary union functions and in the recent past had to deal with some very, very difficult country cases. But Minister Santano brings a wealth of experience to that challenging role. He is an economist by training, was a university professor before he began his political career in 2015. Before that, he also held several positions in Portugal's central bank, where he started off as an economist in the year 2000. He uh, has two master's degrees in applied mathematics and uh, economics, and did his PhD at Harvard. In today's lecture, he is going to speak about the push to reform the euro and the new agenda and the politics behind that. And we'll discuss how the single currency could better shield the European economy from both internal and external shocks in the future. For those of you who are Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Eurozone. And I'd ask you to please turn your phones off so, so that they don't disrupt the event. And please join me in welcoming Minister Santana to deliver his lecture today. Well, good afternoon. And I would like to start thanking Minouj for the flattering introduction that she uh, made uh, and to express my great uh, uh, honor to be in such a great academic environment and uh, having a room full of uh, young, interested people uh, in Europe and in the Eurozone. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, um, I was also told that classes don't start until next week. Uh, so several among you must have cut your holidays short, uh, which is a great honor. And I hope, however, that these won't play against me when we open the floor for questions, but <laughs> feel free. The debate about the sovereign crisis and the euro area is a crowded field where positions are overly crystallized. I'm not avoiding that discussion, but uh, I believe it would be thought-provoking if we took some distance and framed this conversation in terms of what lies ahead of us. This is uh, the thinking behind the question that lent the title to this lecture, precisely how would the euro shield Europe from future crises. In case uh, you are moving to the edge of your seats, uh, let me say up front that I don't intend to have uh, a go uh, at predicting the causes uh, or timing of the next crisis. 
But uh, instead, I want to discuss what the potential of the euro is to make our economies more resilient, irrespective of what eats us in the future, and which reforms are needed to ensure that the euro lives up to its promise. Just before being appointed as finance uh, minister uh, of Portugal, I edited a book with uh, one of your colleagues, Francesco Caselli and José Tavares, uh, on precisely this topic, uh, collecting contributions from several authors, some of them also professors at, uh, at the London School of Economics. The title of that book was After the Crisis, the Euro Crisis, Reform, Recovery and Growth uh, in Europe. Uh, it is also always uh, a pleasure to see that after uh, that book uh, was published, uh, the agenda that most authors presented uh, in, uh, in this book uh, has been implemented to a large extent uh, in Europe. Of course, the credits uh, is uh, to be presented to those authors, but uh, it's, also, uh, it's always a great pleasure, of course, uh, that uh, the academic world uh, can be uh, uh, seen and uh, effectively uh, promoting and, and contributing to these discussions. In the face of external shocks and domestic challenges, the sentiment in Europe today uh, is, and this may be a paradox, uh, even more favorable to the European Economic and Monetary Union. According to the last numbers of the Eurobarometer, the indicator um, that measures uh, the position vis-à-vis -vis, uh, the construction of the Eurozone uh, as, uh, is now at the highest level in, since the last 15 years uh, if we take the opinion of Euro-area citizens. And this is uh, quite reassuring uh, of uh, the, the, the job that we have uh, to implement. Of course, as policymakers, uh, our main task is to increase the resilience in the euro area. But resilience is much less appealing than economic growth and job creation to the public. And uh, even if this is a very short-sighted uh, view, uh, we have uh, to be able at all moments in time, and I will call for this uh, in my talk, several times, we will need to call ourselves and give ourselves time for, for us to finish this, this job. One of the most interesting economic papers I have read recently argues that long-run economic performance is better explained through the rate and frequency of recessions than through an increase in the growth rate. In short, shrinking is more consequential than growing which can also be translated that crises have long-lasting effects. The history of the euro, although short, offers some backing to this conclusion. In the initial decade of the single currency, countries in the periphery grew fast, but the crisis wiped out these, uh, those gains very, very fast as well. We must now fight the potentially permanent effects of this slowdown. Thus, it is good to keep this evolution in mind today as the euro area arrives at an interesting juncture. The euro area economy has been growing at a quite robust pace since last year, 
as the recovery turned into steady expansion across all member states. And this is something also new in the euro area. All member states are growing above 1.5 percentage points. In fact, the euro area is growing already for 21 consecutive quarters, and this is an historical record for this set of countries. However, the balance of risks recently has shifted downside amid escalating trade and political tensions. Of course, I have to include in these tensions, in these tensions the Brexit and also uh, increased volatility in foreign, in foreign exchange uh, markets. I will divide my talk in four parts. First, I will set out the potential of the euro. Over the past few years, we have heard much about the shortcomings of the single currency, with little acknowledgement of the benefits of the euro. It is time to rebalance the debate. I will then discuss what we need to ensure the euro can live up to its promises and possibilities in full. The crisis taught us lessons that both contradict and go beyond the diagnosis and prescriptions of often cited economic theories, notably the claim that the euro can only work within a full-blown financial and fiscal union. I will respond to this claim with the reform proposals that we are currently discussing at the Eurogroup, and again, ask for time. In my conclusion, I will reflect on the political dimension of the euro. I will say that uh, we must prevent the single currency from becoming a source of division and tension between the peoples of Europe and turn it into an engine of the economic integration. The best part will be certainly the fourth part uh, when we will have the opportunity to interact and have the contributions of your questions to this debate. So one of the purposes of monetary integration is to achieve financial stability by eliminating exchange rate volatility. In contrast with floating exchange rates, which tend to overshoot changes in economic fundamentals, stable exchange rates protect the monetary value of contracts. In doing so, stable exchange rate provides a cushion effect that fosters trade and growth, and growth in the long run. From the demise of the Bretton Woods system through the mid-90s, external economic shocks often pushed the exchange rates of European currencies apart against the will of central banks and governments. Fears about escalating trade barriers and an abrupt withdrawal of the UK from the EU would have a similar effect today as investors would move against vulnerable member states and seek refugee, re refuge in safe havens. A single currency, such as the euro, ensures countries against these risks. As you know, the downside of exchange rate stability is the lack of flexibility to respond to shocks in the short term. Following an asymmetric shock, and in the absence of exchange rate depreciation, Euro-area countries can only return to equilibrium through a combination of downward adjustment of wages and prices and an increase in productivity. The problem is that wage cuts, in addition to the legal and political difficulties that come with them, 
have a recessionary short-run effect in the economy. As for productivity enhancing reforms, they take their time to, uh, uh, to, to have uh, an effect. Put differently, neither wage adjustments nor reforms are effective in the short term. They are uh, not, indeed, for these periods of time, silver bullets. This uh, realization was uh, behind the argument made by some, of, uh, by some that Greece and other crisis-hit countries would somehow be better off exiting the euro. But the case for flexibility is not without its limitations. For one, the case for flexibility requires a significant positive impact of exchange rate depreciation on the level of exports. This is not always apparent. Take the case of the UK. The double-digit depreciation in the sterling pound on the back of the Brexit referendum was indeed followed by an increase in exports. But the boom was relatively small in historic terms. What is more, Britain lagged behind other major European countries in export growth. Something else was indeed at play. It has been suggested that the features of UK trade today, in particular the integration in supply chains, have subdued or at least delayed the impact of the depreciation. This is consistent with the euro area experience as well, where countries such as Greece and Portugal sought to replicate exchange rate depreciation through a reduction in labor costs, the so-called internal devaluation. Despite a sharp fall in labor costs in Greece, an export boom failed to materialize. The concentration of goods of good exports in capital-intensive sectors and the small level of openness of the Greek economy, which is evident in its low share of exports in GDP, have been blamed for that. Also, Portugal's recent increase in exports was only marginally driven by a fall in labor costs or by real effective exchange rate depreciation, if you prefer, during the period of adjustment uh, during the program. Instead, in Portugal, it was the result of a more effective allocation of resources to the export-led sectors, supported by counter-cyclical fiscal policies and the long-term effect of education reforms. There are mechanisms other than depreciation that can ease the adjustment process within a currency union. Integrated financial markets offer immediate relief in the form of inward financial flows from countries unaffected by the shock to those countries severely hit in a crisis. We have also learned how coordinated fiscal and structural policies and macroprudential capital requirements can prevent the buildup of imbalances and ease the path of adjustment. A robust fiscal capacity can complement, albeit not replace this. I will take this point later, which is a very important point in Europe. For all this, the asymmetry of business and credit cycles within a monetary union needs not to be a problem and can be turned in our favor. This, uh, there is ample room to increase growth potential by addressing the lack of integration and existing inefficiencies. This takes me to the second part of this talk. Why do we need to reform the euro and how should we go about doing that?
Asked about, uh, we went through bankrupt. One of uh, Ernest Hemingway's ill-mannered characters said, in two ways, gradually and then suddenly. Less eloquent, elo eloquent economists like Rudy Dornbusch found the description fits most economic and financial crises. The euro area crisis was indeed no exception. Large imbalances built up over years and up to the day when financial flows from the center to the periphery abruptly uh, reversed. These sent banks and, and sovereigns on a downward spiral, which was made worse by widespread fiscal retrenchment that followed. The euro found itself with no adequate tools to fight this crisis. The political and monetary response, though not free from mistakes, eventually resulted in an economic turnaround. We are now reaping the rewards from this turnaround. The success of a growth strategy takes me back to the so-called, and I'm going to call it like that, the workhorse model of how markets work. And markets work through supply, demand, and institutions. To work, a growth strategy needs indeed that a triplet come together. This triplet includes reforms, demand, and time. This is the third or fourth time that I mentioned the word time in an economic, with an economic content. And I think this is true. The, this triplet needs to work at the local at a national and at a European level. We need to adapt our institutions to the technological, market, and demographic changes. So reforms expand supply and potential for growth. They are needed in all and every country of the Eurozone, and certainly also at the European Union level. So this is one part of the triplet. But reforms do not materialize without a proper demand environment. This is the second dimension. This is true at all points in the business cycle, but it is indeed more acute in times of crisis. Coordinated fiscal consolidation without making room for demand growth is detrimental to the success of the reform process. Finally, Time is of the essence. Time is both liquidity and patience. The state is the major supplier of liquidity in patience in modern economies. The state, the government, should never lose the ability to use both in a very wise manner. In a nutshell, these three ingredients should be available at all times during a growth process. We must implement the reforms. We must give enough time for these reforms to produce effects. Going back to the Eurozone, we know that the institutional landscape that underpins the Euro is still incomplete. So we need reforms. Let there be indeed no doubt. For as long as this institutional landscape remains incomplete, it only can yield suboptimal results. 
So if we are happy that we are going for 21 consecutive quarters uh, and that the, the labor market is posting more, almost 8 billion, 8 million, sorry, uh, jobs uh, in the shortest period of time ever uh, in the countries that compose the euro area, we cannot be complacent with that because we need to understand that these results are obtained, however, in an incomplete and uh, reform-prone institutional landscape. So the reforms that we are discussing at the Eurogroup are intended to close this gap. This includes, as matters of priority, the completion of the banking union and the reform of the European stability mechanism. In parallel, we are discussing proposals to build a, a fiscal capacity, or as it is more commonly known, a, Euro, a Eurozone budget. So I will discuss the three in turn now. Robert Mandel did not make much of the role of the financial system in his theory of optimal currency areas. But banks were often portrayed as the villains of the euro area crisis. In the early years of the euro, the banking system channeled excess savings from the center to the periphery. Financing grows, unfortunately, in non-tradable sectors, and in some cases, profligate sovereigns. But these channels of financing and credit also generated imbalances within the euro area itself. It financed these, those imbalances. Clearly, the trigger for the crisis wasn't the same everywhere. But eventually, member states in the periphery were all dragged into a vicious cycle in which failing banks and their sovereigns pulled each other down. The, loop, the doom loop, as it is called, was in full spin in Ireland, which saw its debt balloon after it promised to make banks debt wool. In Greece, the banks were forced to write down the value of their government bond holdings. In a bid to close this loop, member states, member states have moved to a single bank supervisor and agreed on a common rules that forced lenders to hold more capital. New rules were also introduced to make investors bear the losses when banks failed and to hand over to European authority the power to win down falling systemic uh, lenders. We, we need really to make the system more credible. First on our list is setting up a backstop to the Single Resolution Fund, the SRF. The SRF is a fund made of uh, contributions from the industry intended to provide funds needed to recapitalize the good parts of failed lenders in the event of a full-blown crisis and after a bail-in. To put it simply, it is a measure uh, of last resort to stop a domino effect in the banking system preventing banks from falling one after the other in the event of a crisis. There is an agreement that the European stability mechanism should be uh, the provider of this backstop. We are now discussing the details, in particular the decision-making process for activating this backstop, 
swiftly and the date of introduction, which nevertheless was already agreed that uh, will, can be earlier than 2024, or in other words, will not, will not be later than 2024. We are also working on a way to ensure banks, uh, in the case of need of resolution, can have access to sufficient liquidity to operate. This is no simple matter and is one in which I think we can learn a lot from the British experience. The UK set up a framework that enables the Bank of England to provide temporary liquidity support to banks subject to resolution. An indemnity can be requested by the Bank of England to the Treasury, but losses are ultimately borne by the industry. We should finish our work on the backstop before the end of the year. In the meantime, we will uh, also make progress in discussions that pave the way for a European Deposit Guarantee Scheme, known uh, as EDIS. Uh, I use too many acronyms. Europeans love acronyms, so sorry for that. But let's keep up <laughs> with, the, with the talk. EDIS, which is the European Deposit Insurance Scheme uh, in Europe, is, uh, is uh, meant, of course, to reduce the risk of bank runs. In Britain, you know well what I'm talking about. Uh, the long queues for the branches of Northern Rock back in 2008 demonstrated how depositor panic can deal a deadly blow to a global institution. The case for EDIS is uh, overwhelming from a European perspective not least because its existence alone instills confidence uh, in the system, making its very use rather unlikely. However, there are concerns that need to be addressed before uh, and uh, as we build it. Again, the European way, step by step. The reduction of legacies from the crisis, in particular the reduction of the stock of bad loans, should mitigate differences in the starting point of banks in different countries. To discourage free-riding behavior, that is, banks seeking to benefit from the system without paying for it, we should adjust the level of contributions that banks pay to the risks they take on their balance sheet. A full-blown EDIS is controversial and will, in any case, take some time to build, but we'd better get started. To those who think Europe is sluggish, let me share a piece of policy trivia with you. It took the U.S. Congress almost half a century and more than 150 proposals to come to an agreement on a deposit insurance scheme, and this was done back in the 1930s. We don't expect 50 years, <laughs> but we need to continue working on this. An indirect effect of the banking union will be uh, to make banks and therefore capital more pan-European, and less divided along national lines. In that sense, this should result in a reduction of financial fragmentation. Integrated financial markets help to match savers and borrowers across Europe, making the allocation of capital resources more efficient. That is an additional tremendous advantage available to those that share a currency. Financial integration is also key to making our economies more resilient by dissipating shocks through the financial markets. In Europe, 25% of the asymmetric shocks 
are dissipated through financial markets. Only 25%, and it's only when you compare to the US figure, which is 70%. Consequently, in Europe, the heavy lifting has to be done until today by fiscal buffers at national level. A banking union and a capital markets union could bring about a much healthier balance. I will come back to this topic later when I discuss the merits and limits of a fiscal capacity for the euro area. Now let me say a few words about the European stability mechanism. The argument that a currency without a government is doomed to uh, often repeated but seldom spell out. A notable exception was Paul de Gros. You know Paul, certainly. He showed how the fear of illiquidity in sovereign bond markets can drive a solvent euro area government into default because of what he deemed uh, as its flawed governance. In this sketch, yields rise as confidence evaporates and investors shy away from taking on sovereign debt as governments need to roll it over. This, in turn, compels governments to cut spending with an expansion, when an expansionary fiscal policy was most needed uh, and compensate for the effects, uh, to compensate sorry, for the effects of the budding downturn. Investors' flight to safety exacerbates this effect without the compensating effect of exchange rate depreciation within a monetary union. You could say this process was in full view uh, at the height of the crisis and resulted in the rapid widening in spreads of sovereigns in the euro area. The setup of a rescue fund with 500 billion euros firepower to provide assist financial assistance to struggling sovereigns was, in fact, the response and a major part of the political response to this problem. The European stability mechanism, precisely the, uh, the institution that uh, holds these 500 billion euros, ensured sovereigns in difficulties, that sovereigns in difficulties would honor their commitments and pay back bondholders by lending to them against an adjustment program. It is time to draw lessons from this experience. We are going to revamp the mechanism and turn it into an even more powerful crisis management instrument. The role of the, and, and the instruments of the ESM, uh, the European Stability Mechanism, will be more effective and more readily available in case of a crisis. The ESM has currently six instruments, but only two, uh, two of those have ever been used. This is not because the remaining four are useless or unnecessary. In, case, uh, in the case of precautionary instruments, it is more down to the political and market stigma attached to them. Precautionary instruments were designed for countries that have sound economic policies and yet are vulnerable to episodes of turbulence in financial markets. They are different from loans in that they only provide insurance against a liquidity crisis. We are discussing ways to streamline these instruments. One option would be to dispense, dispense a full-blown memorandum while still imposing strict conditions for those that benefit from them. Uh, 
This small step could make a big difference by reducing the risk of self-fulfilling liquidity crisis. In parallel, we are looking at proposals to give the ESM a stronger role in the design and monitoring of financial assistance programs, improving the division of labor with the European Commission. As precautionary instruments become more important, the ESM could also be given the capacity to assess risks in member states, in particular liquidity risks. Finally, we need to consider the governance of the ESM. This should not result in a weakening of the role of national parliaments, as uh, with the backstop, the Eurogroup should set out the terms of these reforms until the end of the year. The final dimension of the reform that I want to touch briefly is the fiscal capacity. The idea about that, uh, that, about what it should look like and what its purpose should be, has not yet reached a point of compromise in Europe. This makes this uh, conversation challenge, challenging. But euro area budget should certainly support convergence among euro area members complementing existing structural and cohesion funds in the EU budget. This could be achieved by providing financial support to countries that implement structural reforms and invest in innovation and active labor market policies. Alternatively, a narrow area fiscal capacity can perform temporary fiscal transfers in the event of an economic shock. Such a budget could be designed to respond to either asymmetric shocks taking off some of the burden from national budgets, or symmetric shocks, in which case it could work in tandem with monetary policy, as it works in any other uh, monetary uh, union. More interestingly, perhaps, uh, we have started also to discuss uh, the possibility to implement an unemployment insurance fund uh, in uh, Europe. The U.S. has a similar setup, and we can draw certainly lessons from their experience. As you know, U.S. states have discretion to manage their unemployment funds and have the chance to borrow money from each other. The federal budget also contributes to pay for extended unemployment benefits in times of crisis. As an economist, I believe there is a very strong case to be made for an instrument of this type. The crisis confirmed that rule-abiding member states can be pushed to the brink since markets force them to shut off automatic stabilizers despite their uh, virtuous starting point. A compensating and complementary mechanism would help to prevent small crises from escalating into something bigger, benefiting us all. It would improve the allocation of labor both at the EU level and within countries. More importantly, it will also contribute to smooth business, cycle, business cycles across European Union states. As with any other backstop, a centralized Eurozone budget would have a positive effect by instilling confidence in the system, encouraging financial integration, and by complementing its positive effects. But I do not pretend this is a consensual idea. Far from it. Behind the opposition to the proposal of a fiscal capacity often lie concerns 
about moral hazard. Moral hazard exists in every dimension of state intervention in the economy. A more interesting question is whether and how we can mitigate this risk through clever policy design. There are a number of ideas out there. For instance, we can link non-permanent transfers to increases in unemployment that consider the country's history of unemployment levels and fluctuations. We can calibrate member states' contributions to a common fund in a way that reflects the frequency uh, of withdrawals to ensure incentives to take part are balanced. In parallel, we can also discuss how to simplify our, our fiscal rules to ensure a Eurozone budget would complement rather than replace national fiscal buffers. In one line, we should not hide ourselves behind red lines and should instead seek to compromise. But uh, it's exactly at this stage that it is so important to communicate with the academic world because we really need very good research uh, on this topic. Uh, it will, uh, I have the view that uh, mechanism design uh, is at the center should be at the center stage uh, of uh, our e economic research. It uh, is similar to genetics to medicine. And so, if I am able to do that, <laughs> I think it uh, will bring about very productive research uh, ideas if we work in designing mechanisms to reduce moral hazard in a monetary union uh, to uh, make it more resilient. And we are in much, much in need of research in that area. So, let me conclude. And uh, uh, to conclude, I will bring uh, all these issues uh, in the political dimension of the euro. The euro is an instrument of stability, which has the potential to shield European economies and its people from economic shocks. But for the euro to live up to its promise, we need to complete the institutions that underpin it. This doesn't entail building a full-blown political and fiscal union, but completing the framework on the basis of the lessons we have learned from the crisis and in full respect of the different political preferences. Not only do we need to reform the euro, but we must defend its reputation. We can no longer allow our single currency to be treated as a scapegoat. The euro was not the only culprit for the crisis, and it is certainly not to blame for all the heels that affected our economies. Policymakers must be made accountable for their actions, their inaction, and their mistakes when they make them. And there is a bias here because policymakers are more often uh, a made accountable for their actions than for their inactions. <laughs> and uh, as an economist, uh, I think we need to face policymakers with a very suitable counterfactual, because the counterfactual is sometimes the best way to depict the cost of inactions. So the euro confounds itself with uh, the promise of peace and prosperity. 
And this goes some way to explain the mistaken predictions uh, of the demise uh, of the single currency. But it is rash for politicians to take the euro for granted. We must not let the next crisis widen the gulf between the core and the periphery. And we must not give uh, ground to the populist forces that create such artificial divisions. From a political science perspective, populism is the flip side of impatience. The idea of Europe is not new. The idea of Europe does not belong to our generation. But our generation is building it, is building this idea of Europe in a time of peace. And this is certainly, certainly the best setting ever to deliver results and provide added value to European citizens. This is my focus and my priority as a policymaker and as a chair of the Eurogroup. The Euro as an institution was pushed to the limit at a very young age. The Euro is one of the youngest currencies in the world. If you compare it with, um, with the dollar or with the sterling pound, it is still a toddler. And we have to uh, teach him how to, how to walk properly and fit. It faced a serious existential crisis. It tested our commitment to Europe, but it came out stronger. Leaders, the prime ministers of the Eurozone, accepted to take hard decisions to defend the Euro. I think citizens are giving the right answer uh, to their commitment to keep uh, the Euro. And this is why uh, I am uh, an optimistic finance minister and convinced that there is much more than money in the euro. Going forward, the euro will be the engine of European integration as it has been in the recent past. And uh, in this sense, it is right to say that the future of the euro is the future of Europe. And uh, it is so because uh, it is built to protect us. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Minister Centano. I may start with a question myself and then let the audience have a few moments to gather their thoughts, and I'll take questions in batches of three. And uh, if you could identify yourself and your affiliation, and the mics will come round. But maybe just a, a first one from me. You mentioned time a lot <laughs> in your talk. Uh, and at the end, you said populism is the flip side of impatience. Uh, and you're quite right. Time is needed for reforms to set in, for to build a consensus, to have the effects of benefits of reform felt. And yet populism and markets are very impatient. How do you see this reform agenda that you've laid out coexisting with a Europe in which populism and impatient markets have become more important rather than less? <laughs> so thank you again, and uh, now starts the important, <laughs> uh, the important part uh, of this afternoon, and with a great question. Uh, I think uh, I think we, uh, if we don't uh, make progress uh, in this agenda, we'll be we will be feeding that uh, loop 
that goes from a landscape uh, that is quite rough uh, because it is incomplete, uh, because uh, of the mechanisms that uh, lack uh, in this landscape to produce results, uh, and these will feed into impatience uh, and uh, breaking it uh, will, will generate uh, a positive outcome uh, and, uh, uh, and we cannot uh, stay short uh, of having success uh, in, in this endeavor. <clears throat> the answers that we gave um, in the crisis uh, came uh, both late and, and uh, I'm saying this not as pretending or wanting to be a critic, uh, but uh, just uh, trying to understand uh, the whole process. Uh, they, came, um, they came late uh, and they came uh, with, a, uh, with a, a, a lot of anxiety uh, into, into it. Uh, it looked like uh, we were not really sure of what we uh, were doing. But uh, there are uh, many indicators that we can use uh, to prove that we, uh, that we really are now uh, working together and uh, uh, working more properly as a monetary union in the Eurozone. Uh, one of the key indicators for this uh, is you, you take the time series uh, of the fiscal positions of the 19 uh, member states uh, of the Eurozone, uh, and you are today uh, at, a at the point of the lowest dispersion of fiscal positions across countries uh, in, in Europe. And this is certainly uh, due to the business cycle, I have no doubt about it, but it is to a great extent the result of the implementation of the Stability and Growth Pact that, uh, that uh, uh, allowed us to coordinate better uh, our, uh, our, fiscal, our fiscal positions. And we now have to depart from these uh, and look at uh, the positive impact that the banking union also uh, brought about to our financial sector. The, the financial integration was quite fast to start with in the Eurozone, but then financial fragmentation uh, increased. Uh, I mean, it was almost uh, an explosion, uh, and it is taking quite a lot of time to, to build. I mean, banks went domestic, uh, cross-border investments uh, were uh, stopped, and uh, they are taking time to, to, to recover. Uh, Europe is building up uh, lots of savings as a whole, uh, and uh, we need to know how to use those savings within uh, the euro area again uh, uh, to the benefit uh, of, uh, of our citizens. So if we don't do that, we will continue that uh, uh, loop of uh, impatience and, uh, and uh, uh, incomplete institutions. Okay. Thank you very much. Let me open the floor. Can I see some? Let's see. I'll take the, the lady in the back, the one here, and the gentleman up there. Um, yeah, Jess Jessica Shankleman, um, a journalist from Bloomberg News. Um, you've mentioned that the Eurozone's institutions are incomplete. Do you think that today, if there was a problem in one Eurozone country, for example, uncertainty about Italy's budget plans, you'd see contagion to other Eurozone countries in the same manner as we did during the Euro crisis? Or do you think markets would react differently? 
Okay, let me take the second one here. And if you could introduce yourself. Uh, hi, uh, my name's Pamela. Um, I was just wondering, um, do, you, you, do you think that time is with you in the sense that if another crisis or a slowdown happens now, given where monetary policy is and interest rates are still very low and the extent of quantitative easing has kept uh, yields artificially low in Europe, to what extent do you think there would be an appetite for a, f a substantial fiscal response to um, increase growth in the Eurozone if, if needed? Okay, and the gentleman up there, if you could say your name and your affiliation. Yes, um, thank you very much, um, Ewan Grant. Um, my question is based on um, my experience working in a European Commission mission in the Ukraine, where I, um, I, was, I worked with the successor agency to the KGB. And um, I have to say, the mission I worked in was not exactly the Entebbe raid. It had serious ethical and operational problems. So I, I question certain issues of the e efficiency of the European Central Institution. My question is, you said that um, the euro is the driver, will be the driver for further European integration. Where's that going to go, that integration, and how are we most obviously going to see it? Because to, to, to recap, I really have very grave doubts about the internal efficiencies of the institutions. You implied that yourself. You said mistakes, slow responses. I mean... How fully have the lessons been taken on board from the way the institutions internally acted okay. at the time of the crisis? Thank you. Thank you. Let me turn to the minister, and I'll come back for another round of questions in a moment. <clears throat> yes. Uh, the, the first and the second question, in a sense, uh, they, they, they connect. And I'm going to, for the sake of uh, brevity, but uh, to connect them uh, with an example. Uh, agreeing with, uh, with your concerns vis-à-vis uh, -vis, uh, the functioning uh, of, uh, of European institutions that, that we certainly uh, need to revamp uh, and uh, continuously uh, and to, uh, to, to, to change the, the face of, those, of these bottlenecks that are created at uh, uh, a very uh, bureaucratic level, if I may put it like that. And I was, I was going to, to kind of remind you, or if you don't are aware of this, to, to let you know uh, how it worked, uh, the first uh, program uh, uh, that was designed by the ECB to buy uh, European bonds in specific countries at the beginning of the crisis. Uh, every day, uh, at 6 uh, uh, a.m. Central European time, the, um, the reserve departments of all national central banks uh, of the European, uh, of the Euro system, will uh, engage in a, a conference call uh, to uh, determine the amount of bonds uh, for Greece, Portugal, and Spain that they will buy that day. Mm. Uh, so prior to the opening of the markets, uh, by 
a phone call <laughs> connected to 19 terminals, uh, they will decide by the time it, they were not 19, <laughs> less than 19, because some of the Baltic states were not yet uh, Eurozone members, and they will discuss uh, these in a way that reminds a little bit the Pony Express time uh, a few decades uh, ago. Institutions were simply not there. We did not have created the, the instruments to make this in a swiftly efficient and credible way. We went a long way uh, from this state, uh, state of, uh, of operations. Uh, and and uh, uh, today, um, even if I frame them as incomplete, uh, we are not working under the same conditions uh, as before. Uh, this uh, makes uh, the European institutions more credible, mainly to the markets, and um, we are able to discuss issues today that were totally out uh, of question to be discussed uh, five, ten years ago. Uh, we had to build this, uh, these instruments in the worst scenario possible, <laughs> which was uh, in the <laughs> middle of the more severe crisis that uh, uh, our uh, economies suffered for 80 years. Uh, and it was quite a test. Uh, so I think that uh, not referring specifically to the case of Italy, uh, but uh, to uh, all sorts of crisis management today in Europe is much, it will perform, perform much better than, than, than before, and we do have the firepower, we, have, we do have some of the instruments that we already, uh, we already have those instruments that we need. The point here is um, connecting with the last uh, part uh, and with this uh, response uh, to answer also this question on the fiscal, uh, uh, on the appetite to, to, do, to do something in the fiscal front, um, the, the, the way we discuss those issues today in Europe is so much different from what, the way we discussed uh, five, ten years ago that I have no doubt that, uh, that uh, Europe will respond affirmatively uh, to this. The, the Greek prog program was the huge, the, huge, the, the largest um, uh, bailout program ever uh, in the world, uh, and it was operated with, mainly with the European uh, resources, given that the, the contribution, of, the important contribution of the IMF is nevertheless uh, a minority of the money involved in the program, uh, and uh, you cannot have a, a bigger commitment uh, to, to this than uh, countries putting their money uh, into the problem. So uh, I do think uh, we are now today better. We need to continue to improve. But when we look back five years ago and uh, simply describe how uh, 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 primary were the, uh, the, the, were, were the, the instruments available, uh, we are uh, today in a much better position.
Okay, let me come back to the audience. Take the gentleman back here, the woman here, and the lady here. Hi, I'm Sebastian Diesen. I'm a PhD student in the European Institute with Paul de Grau. Um, thank you very much for your interesting lecture, um, Minister Centeno. And I'm sorry I have to pick up on a small detail in a way, but um, in your speech you mentioned a small but quite striking difference between the UK and the Eurozone, among many differences, of course. But it's a difference between the Bank of England and the ECB, namely that in case of major losses from certain operations, the, as you mentioned, the Bank of England has an indemnity, has a fiscal guarantee in a way, and in the Eurozone we don't. So I, my question is simply, would, would this be desirable? Would it be possible in the Eurozone, or why might we not need it, actually? Thanks. Mm. Uh, up here. Hi. Hello. My name is Sienna Parrish. I'm a study abroad student from the U.S. And one of the things you've really touched on is integration, which from what I've studied of the European Union has been one of the biggest issues throughout the history is uh, different member states not wanting to lose identity by joining to integrating too deeply together. And given the recent crisis and rise of populism, one of the biggest issues, at least from what I've seen, isn't just fixing the uh, the banks, the governments, but it's also making sure that the people down at the bottom can understand what is going on, have an easier access to information regarding this. I was wondering what programs exist? Are there any ideas to help install programs which will help release it to combat the rise of populism? It doesn't come from nowhere and it doesn't happen overnight. So that's okay. my question. Thank you. And over here. Thank you. Um, I'm Maggie Ellis. I coordinate a European group about e-technology. Um, I wanted to make two points. One is that I think one problem is that the United Kingdom is no longer united, and we're actually four nations. When I meet my colleagues in Scotland or Northern Ireland, they would want to ask you very different questions than some of the people in this room. Um, your comment about Northern Rock reminded me how bad we are about history. Because on that weekend, I happened to be at a certain large house in the north of England, and we wondered why the sun kept going out. And then, of course, the next day it was obvious, because he was the chairman of Northern Rock. And um, we've forgotten all those things, and the disaster it was for ordinary people. Now, recently, Gordon Brown commented that he could expect a possible similar crash could happen in this country, and it would be good to have your comment about that. But I wondered what crash you think has to happen to bring this country to its senses and not leave the EU. <laughs> <laughs> what was the question on the ECB? I, I, I uh, oh, on the, whether the ECB should have an indemnity like the Bank of England has. Okay, you've got a wide range of questions there. <laughs> yes, so it's eating up. <laughs> uh, politically, at least. <laughs> uh, and also uh, from, from, from a, a, a regulatory uh, position and supervision and the role of the ECB, uh, well, uh, 
I'm going to stay short of answering your question <laughs> directly, I have to, to admit. Uh, but uh, uh, we, uh, we, we are, um, if you look at, at uh, the, the instruments that ECB has today, uh, again, and this is very important, I know that it's probably uh, not enough uh, as a perspective, but, uh, but uh, and, and you go back uh, in time, you will see uh, that, uh, that we made a lot of progress uh, in modernizing uh, the, the tools uh, uh, that ECB has uh, available uh, to, to properly uh, uh, take these, uh, these, uh, the challenges of uh, monetary policy, of current monetary policy. Uh, and uh, uh, I think uh, my only pledge is for it to develop <laughs> further uh, in the future. Uh, we, I, I, I mentioned the fact that the euro uh, is uh, one of the youngest currencies uh, in the world, uh, and, um, and the fact that this brings uh, lots of uh, progress uh, ahead of us because we can learn from other uh, more mature uh, economic and monetary unions uh, and the instruments they developed, uh, and that's precisely uh, the the goal of this of this idea. So uh, I am pretty much in favor of that. Um, you know the the risk of uh, the risk of populism um, uh, arises uh, precisely because we cannot um, or we were not able to. Um, to spread uh, with, uh, with all citizens uh, of all countries uh, of the European Union uh, the benefits that we were able to develop recently uh, and, uh, and uh, during the recovery uh, from the crisis. Uh, populisms usually are wrong answers to good questions. Uh, and uh, the, uh, I don't want to, to stick to a, a, only one focus, but this is most of the time because we rush to, to, to very simple uh, and uh, uh, easy to, to get uh, answers to those, to those questions. Uh, that's where, again, time <laughs> enters. Uh, and the programs that, that we may uh, implement uh, in, our, uh, in Europe uh, can and should uh, be uh, directed precisely uh, to, to that, to, to, uh, to make uh, the prosperity that we now have uh, in Europe uh, available uh, to all. This is rather technical, but uh, I'm going to try to in 30 seconds because it's something that I think it's very important and again uh, makes a powerful point towards how we depict ourselves in Europe. Uh, it's in that book that I <laughs> quoted, so it's almost a uh, self-quote. Sorry for that. Uh, but uh, uh, if, you, uh, if you take... Uh, this is the chapter that uh, I, I wrote with Francesco Caselli. Uh, if you take um, the distribution uh, of income uh, of all European citizens and put it in a graph so that you have the usual histogram of income distribution for all European uh, uh, 
citizens, and then you identify where those citizens live, you have a very clear uh, amp-shaped distribution, meaning that Portuguese, Greek, Spanish citizens are overwhelmingly located in the lower tail of this distribution. And then you have uh, these countries losing <laughs> representation to the upper tail of the distribution and being replaced by Germans, Dutch, uh, French, uh, and, and so on. Now take the US. And when you do the same thing, uh, and you uh, take the US uh, and, and split the US uh, in regions, by regions, uh, you have almost uniformly distributed way income distributions across regions. So that we call this graph for the US the, uh, the, the stripes of the US flag because you have a very smoothly uniform distribution of the income across uh, regions. And that's, that's the result of two things, in my opinion. Uh, two centuries of uh, economic and monetary union and a fiscal capacity. Uh, so you need both to do this. And, but this takes, I mean, sorry for that time, <laughs> to operate. Convergence is very slow in an economy. Adaptation to structural changes takes time. And this is a big lesson also for Brexit and for the time to come uh, in the relationship between uh, the UK uh, and, and Europe. Uh, I don't have a good answer for your big challenge. Uh, I, I think it was uh, a bad idea. Uh, it will be uh, negative for both UK and Europe. Uh, we have economic, social, I mean, all sorts of ties uh, with, with the UK. Uh, I had the privilege uh, already to see uh, in uh, Theresa May's office the uh, original of the uh, Midwin uh, Treaty among Portugal and, 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 uh, and England back in the, in the, in the 18th century, or, and, it, and it's really... Uh, is uh, the representation of uh, of the um, uh, of uh, of what it uh, it connects us uh, for centuries. Uh, so uh, maybe in the future, in the very near future, some <laughs> uh, sense of uh, uh, common purpose uh, may arise uh, in the relationship of the UK and the, and the EU that may change this uh, a little bit. Can I ask a variation on the Brexit question, which is, as you integrate the Eurozone more, more deeply, uh, it will become more important to define the relationship between the Eurozone and the rest. And many countries that are in the EU but not in the Euro are unlikely to join the Euro anytime soon, especially given the recent history. Um, so, you know, some of the Baltics, the Scandinavians, and so on. And so uh, there was quite a nice paper written by Bruegel about cons a concentric circles model. 
there'll be the core of the Eurozone, there'll be an, another core, another group that will be not in the Euro but very much in the EU, and maybe another group which are integrated through trade but not necessarily through the free movement of labor. You could imagine, you know, you want to have a relationship with Turkey, but you don't necessarily aren't ready to have free movement of labor. So would that concentric circles model be one you think is likely? And might the UK's relationship with Europe evolve post-Brexit into being in one of those concentric circles? Well, uh, the, certainly uh, we, uh, when, when we think of uh, space uh, and the way we organize ourselves uh, through that, that space, uh, we, uh, we, we uh, are tempted always to, to think of, uh, I mentioned that the center and the periphery, or mm -hmm. uh, uh, you make, uh, use uh, different metrics to, um, to, to measure that or to design that. Uh, this, this comes back, I mean, to the history of Europe. Uh, uh, the big difference these days, uh, uh, from a political perspective, is that we are uh, building on these circles, just to, to keep your idea, uh, uh, in a time of peace. In a, in a way, uh, we are voting each step of this, <laughs> of this, uh, of this construction. And uh, uh, we can start from there. And we can, again, rebuild these uh, relationships uh, with, with the UK, uh, starting from a given point and, uh, and, and, and redoing, again, uh, what, what we achieved uh, in in the past, um, but it is very important from a political perspective for those that think that are in the center to understand that they are their own periphery so if if they lose the outer parts of these uh, circles, uh, they will be exposed <laughs> themselves and they will be the periphery of themselves. Uh, and uh, I think that when we uh, uh, are able to endogenize these, uh, we uh, understand that the best way uh, is to try to work out uh, a society, an economy that uh, at some point in time will give us this uniform distribution of, uh, uh, of uh, income, of people, uh, and that eventually pushes us uh, all in general equilibrium up. Okay. Let Ian and then the gentleman here, and I'll take one at the top, the gentleman in the back. Thank you. I'm, I'm Ian Begg from the Host Institute, the European Institute. The, the, fr the French chef Escoffier explained the secret of French cooking as being butter, 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 and plenty of time. So you have a good <laughs> antecedent on, on the time. But I want to suggest two other words that maybe you've overlooked in your presentation. And they are first, scale. The scale of interventions. When you look at the, what was proposed in the Commission's so-called St. Nicholas package last December, the magnitude of the suggestions on a Eurozone budget was in millions when the problem is in billions. So is there not a difficulty of scale? And the second word I want to suggest to you is 
can call it either implementation or compliance. It's all very well to establish new rules, particularly on things like macroeconomic imbalances. But if you don't follow through by enforcing or implementing, they become a dead letter. We know that the Stability and Growth Pact, which you gave great praise to, has been in existence for more than 20 years. And in that time, the only country to have been fined is yours and the Spanish last, uh, two years ago when you were fined zero euros. So is that consistent with implementation and compliance? Okay. Gentleman here. Uh, good evening. Thank you for the talk. I'm Guillaume. I'm a graduate from the LSE. Um, you mentioned at the end of your speech fiscal integration and the Eurozone budget, which uh, I'm a big fan of, but it also requires some uh, political willingness, and um, especially from countries like France or Germany. And when the new French president got elected, it was actually a campaign promise. Um, he was like, we should implement that, and f you know, wanted to do so. Uh, I wanted to know um, where we stand one year um, after his election, if there's still a political momentum or if it's pretty much a dead idea. Um, that's unlikely to happen in the short term. Okay, thank you. Um, question in the back. Uh, Nick Panasar, freelance IT project manager. Um, what is your thoughts on the growing movement of cryptocurrencies for European financial transactions? And does the ESM see it as a future source of crisis, especially if cryptocurrency in future years becomes seen as a safe harbor of wealth? Okay. <laughs> we cover all bases. <laughs> this is fanning out. <laughs> very interesting point. Very, very interesting point. I mean, we could be talking uh, for hours <laughs> uh, on the two issues that, uh, uh, if I understood correctly, you, you, you want me to, to touch upon. To, first, a declaration of uh, principles. I am not uh, a big fan uh, of big machines in terms uh, of uh, structural changes. My view uh, on structural changes is that they need to be implemented uh, gradually so that uh, you are able to uh, evaluate them and make, make everybody understand uh, the positive uh, effect of those, of those changes. Um, so uh, it is true, what is designed is kind of an embryo of a fiscal capacity, being it the investment stabilization mechanism or uh, when more detail is available, uh, this uh, idea of the unemployment insurance, certainly it will be uh, the starting point to something that may develop uh, bigger if proved successful. Uh, and I'm not saying this about big machines just because from a political uh, economy perspective it's much easier to, um, to implement these changes in the current context of Europe if those uh, are really designed in a careful and not very uh, large <laughs> way. But um, uh, economic, in an economic system changes occur always at the margin. So the, the thing is that you have to design it carefully so that it, is target, so that it targets those margins. And again, starting from these fringes of inefficiency that we have in the system, these changes may 
work their way, even if they are not very large. Because some of these instruments uh, are made not to be used at all. They are made, uh, so it, it's a little bit uh, in, the, in the same city of London when in 2012 Mario Draghi uh, made that famous statement, whatever it takes. Uh, it, it, is, uh, it is precisely a statement that was very, very powerful, but uh, Mario Draghi did not use <laughs> uh, much money uh, to, 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 to that to have an impact. Uh, it has to, you, to, to act on the very margins of, um, of, uh, of inefficiency, uh, and uh, if it is really well designed, uh, and this is a big if, maybe, uh, but uh, uh, it really uh, can, can bring us uh, to, uh, to, to some impact. And uh, afterwards, we, meet, we need to reconvene, to evaluate it, and to expand it if we think it is, it is, it is appropriate. You, you, you mentioned the Stability and Growth Pact, and that's a statistic that I always love to... Uh, with respect to the Stability and Growth Pact. The Stability and Growth Pact, the first versions uh, of, uh, of it uh, were, uh, were written uh, in the late 90s uh, with uh, uh, 90 pages. The first version of the Stability and Growth Pact had 90 pages. Today, it has 600. 600 plus, <laughs> maybe already. And uh, uh, it is meant to be uh, what uh, economists uh, already know that uh, do not exist, which is a complete contract. We think that the Stability and Growth Pact is indeed the first ever written com complete contract in the world. Uh, a British that was, I, I, I was lucky enough to have him uh, as, a, as, a, as a professor, uh, Oliver Hart, will certainly... Uh, <laughs> Be <laughs> go, we will go crazy uh, with, with this idea, but indeed the Europeans tried to uh, include in the Stability and Growth Pact all sorts of contingencies and uh, state of the world that, that are possible in the, in the different situations of, uh, the countries, of our countries and our economies, and that's simply not going to work very well. So, uh, we are uh, really uh, also uh, in, in much needs to, to, to simplify uh, our uh, view uh, on how to make progress also in that, in that uh, direction as well. Um, the fiscal integration, uh, uh, together with the fiscal capacity, uh, as one of the, its big proponents is uh, President Macron, uh, and uh, um, the Meserberg Declaration, that uh, the document that uh, that was published uh, around June 19th this year, uh, is, uh, I mean, the the best summary uh, that was so far produced uh, on how far it can go at this stage. Uh, it was a big uh, improvement uh, and. Uh, I mean, a big contribution to the discussion of this topic uh, in Europe. Uh, and uh, if you buy this idea that we need to go step by step and designing uh, uh, policies that uh, can uh, target 
quite precisely uh, the problems we have, uh, I think we can make uh, good progress uh, with that, with that uh, document and with that uh, push uh, from, 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 from the contribution of Germany and France uh, in, in Meseberg uh, and uh, upcoming waves <laughs> and, uh, and new versions uh, of it uh, in, the following, in the following weeks, and we are expecting those to, to occur soon. So uh, the debate will continue uh, in, 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 our, in our economies. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, as of the, the cryptocurrencies, uh, I'm afraid I have not much to, <laughs> to say about it uh, as, as president of the Eurogroup. Uh, uh, I mean, we are glad enough that the euro is not a cryptocurrency, so <laughs> we have already problems, enough problems at home. <laughs> okay, I think I have time for one or two more questions, maybe the gentleman here and the lady here, right. and then we'll wrap up. Hi there. Uh, my name is Tommy Wilkes. I'm a journalist with Reuters here in London. I wanted to ask you what you thought the economic consequences would be, specifically of a hard Brexit or a no-deal Brexit. So this is if Britain and the European Union fail to agree a trade deal, what you thought the consequences would be both for the Eurozone and for the UK. And the lady here. Hi. Again, thank you again for you know, spending this time with us. It's uh, quite important just to have this in interaction because this is when we're talking about how the EU gets involved you know, with the people. It's exactly by having these lectures. So I'm thinking I would like to get your thoughts on now that we're living through times of trade wars. And, and we're getting like, you know, very difficult signals from, you know, certain political leaders. Uh, for example, we have, you know, the, the inflation that was happening in, in Turkey. Then you have like President uh, Erdogan that is meeting, um, you know, pre the Russian President Putin and talking about uh, potential um, options to get different versions for the, you know, uh, the foreign exchange currencies reserves. So I'm thinking, where do you think this puts the euro on the international stage uh, of, uh, you know, foreign exchange reserves currencies? Okay. So those that's, are that's it. Two <laughs> tough questions, Dan. <laughs> Brexit and trade wars. Exactly. <laughs> hard, hard Brexit and well, trade wars. Um, those, uh, the two are very bad ideas. So <laughs> <laughs> at least you can <laughs> pull them Summarize together that. like that. Uh, well, Brexit is already hard enough for us to, be, to, to make it uh, harder. Uh, so uh, yeah, I think it's, um, it's very, very important uh, for, for us, uh, for the two sides of the table to get a deal. Uh, because, uh, because I take this as a structural change. Uh, and this is as positive as I can go. <laughs> Uh, on this topic, uh, and uh, as a structural change, uh, we, I already mentioned that before, my view is that uh, agents take time to adjust to structural change. So we, we need uh, to make the, the path very clear, and then uh, policymakers to stay put for agents and allow, give time, again time, for, for agents to, to, to adjust uh, to, to, to this structural change. 
We know that when we implement structural changes, there will be flows, flows of people, flows of capital. Uh, this is how economies adjust. Uh, some farms will move in, some farms will move out of the, uh, of the UK, uh, but the stakes that, that, that we have are very large, especially in the financial sector, uh, and uh, we need to be uh, all around the table, uh, but let me uh, put it this way, especially the UK, uh, to, to make it very, uh, to, to have a very, uh, very clear view uh, on, on the risks that, that, uh, that our economies, especially the UK, face. Uh, so uh, I think uh, we uh, have conditions to have uh, uh, a deal uh, on the Brexit. Uh, and uh, for it to be um, kind enough uh, for economic agents uh, to have time to adjust once the, the path and the direction is, is, is defined by, by politicians. Uh, the same thing is uh, true for, for trade wars and for whatever comes up for the euro as a reserve currency out of this. Um, in, a, in an interview before the summer, uh, I, uh, I mentioned uh, to a French television that uh, uh, there, there we still have room to make these uh, so-called trade wars, uh, to avoid them or to, to, to define them uh, differently from what we envisaged uh, in June uh, or, or July. Uh, it was very good that, that uh, President Juncker and President Trump were able to reach a principle of agreement that uh, on, 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 on this issue in August. Uh, and uh, uh, this somehow materializes this opinion that we still, we always have some um, time to change the course in the Brexit as well. <laughs> I think uh, if politicians want uh, and uh, if uh, people really know the, the true cost of all this exercise and the benefits, uh, maybe they will change their opinions. Um, so we need to, 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 at all times, be available to, to ask uh, people uh, what, what uh, are their views, uh, uh, given the, the facts that we, we all accumulate every day uh, on these issues. Um, and uh, on trade wars, I think, uh, to be honest, that um, uh, policy um, uh, decision makers uh, already, I mean, understood probably later <laughs> than uh, uh, ideally uh, what are the costs uh, of, these, uh, of these processes. No one will gain uh, of it. We know that. Uh, if there's one thing that uh, your teachers, uh, my Econom economist fellows uh, agree uh, in a, in an university in a, like uh, the LSE is that free and fair trade uh, is beneficial to, to to everyone. So this is the thing that we must be focusing to create free uh, and fair trade among our uh, our economies. And um, the euro has some room to to play, certainly in any 
instance of the problem in the future. Uh, and uh, I think as it gains resilience domestically, it can uh, play uh, a more important role uh, as a reserve currency in the future. Okay. Minister Santana, your, uh, your efforts to complete the monetary union are truly laudable and really in everyone's interest. So more power to your elbow and may your <laughs> tenure as chair of the Eurogroup be very, very productive. We, I especially appreciate your eagerness to engage with academia and in, with your former hat as an academic yourself and especially grateful that you came and spoke here at the LSE this evening. So please join me in thanking the Minister. Very good. Very good. Thank you.